Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined, as always, by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings in San Diego. Rob, how are you today? I'm so fired up today, Larry, because it's rare that someone puts a Grateful Dead show across my desk that I'm not really familiar with, that I listen to and just go, wow, have I never not heard that before? And the one you picked for today, I am so excited to talk about and go through, so I'm, I'm doing great, man. Thanks. Well, excellent. Let's dive right into it with the initial track, uh, a song that you never hear the dead play anymore and never heard back then very much either, Seasons of My Heart. But by experience we should know Winter comes But the spring is close behind Okay, so Seasons of My Heart. Yeah, what I was going to say, that's a song I'm so unfamiliar with in general. I, mean, I guess from what you sent over, it's a George Jones song. I never really knew much about it. I've heard it maybe, maybe a handful of times in the last like 30 years. It's a rare one. Yeah, and you know, if I heard it anywhere else, I guess it was also covered by Johnny Cash, so maybe that's where uh, I might have picked it up at one time or another. And uh, New Writers of the Purple Sage played it periodically. Apparently Bobby would drop in and play it with them from time to time. But I just loved it. it. It's not even necessarily the, the the focus of the part of the show that we're going to be talking about today, but it, it's such a unique thing. And here's what I think about this, this tune, Rob, and here's another reason why I picked it. I think as we're going to go through this show today, one of the things we're going to find in here is in the midst of this show from 1969, but late in the year, this is a show from uh, uh, Chet Helm's family dog at the Great Highway in San Francisco from November 2nd, 1969. And so we've been talking about 69 being the year, the peak year of primal dead and here we're getting to the end of it and everybody knows that by 70 and then certainly by 71 uh the dead have really turned themselves into much more of an americana type of band with working man's dead and american beauty but yet in 69 they're still going strong and that's what we're going to really focus on today there's a little backstory to that that we'll get to in a minute but you know one of those traditional suites that they were doing back then with dark star saint stephen the 11 and this time death don't have no mercy instead of love light but seasons of my heart just it it, it just really struck me as one to hear and don't you think that in the same concert where they're going all primal dead i mean this is a country tune this has a country twang to it this kind of has a country melody to it which is kind of what they're going to be gravitating towards in their next version that you're coming up within a year or so here yeah i totally agree i mean when i listen to the song it, it sort of gives me that same feeling as when i listen to like a merle haggard sing me back home right you know it's uh there's a couple of tunes they're starting to, to mess around with at this period before they developed their own Americana voice. That was definitely not psychedelia, you know. It was, uh, and it wasn't, you know, pig pen blues either. It was, it was true kind of, um, you know, country rock and roll, like from, you know, the country masters of, of Cash or Haggard or Chris Christopherson, you know, that we started seeing more of uh, in the early '70s. 
But uh, but this one, you know, kind of is a harbinger of things to come, and very much sounds like you know what you'd expect to hear with uh, with some of the stuff they started carrying. You know, especially as Bobby was, you know, at heart, Bobby was a country kid, right? Yeah, you know, for him, cowboy tunes make a lot of sense, and country songs make a lot of sense. They do, you know, and it explains his album of a few years ago, the the, the country album that he put out. Uh, that maybe one of these days we'll take a listen to and, and talk about and uh, tunes about big wide spaces and open spaces and whatever. But I look, God love him, man. You know, he can do whatever the hell he wants and he certainly doesn't need my approval. But this show uh, that we're featuring today is actually part of the most recent Dave's Picks release, number 43. And he coupled it with another show right from the very end, December 26, 1969. Uh, from McFarland Memorial Auditorium at SMU down in Dallas. And that's a great show uh, in and of itself, although it doesn't have this uh, this four-song suite, so I just wanted to f- focus on that today. But uh, once again, Dave outdoes himself with great picks and great selections. Uh, the sound quality is fun. And Rob, I don't know if you heard this story, but when I was reading the liner notes, because like my professor told me about footnotes in law school, liner notes is where all the good information is. We, we've heard about the houseboat tapes, and we talked about that before, the boat, the tapes that they found on um, Keith's uh, houseboat after he after he died. But apparently there was also something about Owsley Stanley's banana box tapes. And the banana box tapes, according to Dave Lemieux, were all these tapes that were in what looked like a big banana box, and they were in the vault in their own little place. And even though Dave Lemieux is the... Uh, uh, archivist, and he's one of the few people in the world who has, you know, basically free access in and out of the vault. Whether he, whether it had been told to him or whether he just imagined it, he's like, well, I'm not touching uh, Bear's tapes, you know, unless I get the direct say so or go ahead from him. And then he relates how uh, in uh, 2002, when the Dead did their uh, Terrapin family reunion show at Alpine Valley, uh, I was actually at the the first night of that. It was wonderful. Uh, Owsley was there, and Dave Lemieux had a chance to talk to him. And Owsley said, hey, did you ever see that uh, big banana box that we have in there? And Lemieux says, yeah. And he goes, hey, do me a favor. Would you listen to it and tell me what the hell is in there? So Dave Lemieux, it's like, you know, Christmas Day. You know, he gets to go into this box of amazing sound and start listening to it. And th- these are two of the shows that he pulled out of the uh, out of the banana boxes, uh, the tapes that were in the banana boxes. So, you know, that's just more great dead stuff where there's all this wonderful live music lying around. You know, today's jam bands, every note that Goose has ever played live, every note, you know, is, is preserved for posterity. Same with Fish and all of these other bands. But there's moments in early dead history where maybe there's a tape, maybe there isn't. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the thrill of discovering yet another version of how they play something or what they're doing uh, by discovering the tapes. And when you're talking about stumbling across Owsley originals, well, that's probably about as good as it gets, I would say. Yeah, I agree. And it, it, anytime you discover like old uh, gems like that and it's kind of, a, you know, it, it's like found money, right? You know, it's uh, always better than you expect it to be because the surprise is so much better than anything else where you're like, wow, I didn't even know this was still out there. So, like, obviously, all the old reel-to-reels, and you know, I'll say this: you know, what, what one of the things that makes the Grateful Dead so unique and so special is the fact that they're the first band to make sure they recorded almost absolutely everything. There's only a handful of shows that you know no one can find any recording of. That's unique to the, to the Grateful Dead. They certainly got other people to start embracing that. I mean, the record companies were dead set against it, saying no, it's going to decrease the value of, of buying an album. But what they forgot is that you're increasing the ability to derive a fan base. If you've got people trading your tapes and you've got people talking about you and sharing your music, then all of a sudden there's that many more people that are interested in you. So when you put an album out, 
maybe it doesn't sell you know quite as many as it, it may, but probably sells a heck of a lot more for a lot of bands. In that same vein, I really wanted to quickly throw a huge, huge shout out to uh, David Horvath, who uh, who just sent me the link for every Garcia band show of all time, and I'm in the process of downloading all of them right now. Uh, it's a link that he has not shared with many people, and it's been super tight about doing it. And you're not allowed to share it with anyone else. And David, I'm not even sharing it with Larry, my co-host, so he's going to probably send me hate mail now. Damn, I'm just going to make faces at you. But it is... Uh, it, it is literally the the most comprehensive. I mean, the way the terabyte used to be for the uh, for the Grateful Dead archive. You know, before we had archive.org and you know someone actually put together the other uh, terabyte. This is the um, the the terabyte version for Garcia Band. It's nineteen seventy six to nineteen ninety five. It is unreal. I've gone through it over the last like, four days, and I'm salivating, like just going like I can't believe I now have this. Like, I mean, I've got. I've got every 95, uh, you know, 94, 95 Warfield show that I was at that, uh, that, you know, I didn't know if there was recordings of or not. It's truly amazing. And, and we're going to have David on as a guest here soon to talk about what he's done. But, uh, but you know, for those, those people out there that recorded it, amazing. But for those people that have actually found the time to aggregate it, uh, even, you know, just as difficult a job to say, okay, I'm going to put this and digitize it and put it in one place. And, you know, Relisten's done a nice job. Nugs has done a nice job. Archive's done a nice job you know, for tons of music, but, you know, once in a while, someone takes it upon themselves to do it, and uh, kudos to, to David Horvath for doing just that. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. Good point and good shout out. You know, we, we, we get lost in the dead stuff, and we talk about Jerry a lot, and uh, it doesn't hurt to uh, uh, to give people access to all that Jerry Garcia stuff, and, uh, you know, the, I know the uh, Jerry Garcia states put out a lot, the pure Jerry's and the uh, uh, the other, the live Jerry's and all the stuff that they've put out. But there's just so much of it that, you know, in our lifetime, even if they put out four or five shows a year, we don't stand a chance, you know, and it's great to be able to get access to that kind of music. And, um, yeah, let's get him on the show and then I can make my case directly to him to be included on the list. Well, by the way, I don't think it's him being selfish that he's not providing the link to more people. I just don't think he has the, uh, the bandwidth to be able to let, you know, that many people download simultaneously. Like he puts it up and it's just enough people that he can actually like handle the traffic of, of giving him the uh, the music. Well, he's hosting the whole thing. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, so he's hosting it on a. Uh, as far as I understand, he's hosting it on um, what's called Mega, uh, which is a, a British uh, software company. So I couldn't even like pull it all when I first tried to download the entire thing. I couldn't do it as a zip file. I had to download other software, and now I can only download year by year. And each year takes like four and a half, five hours to download because each one is you know five me- uh, five gigabytes. So I mean, it's it's a hundred gigs of music, even compressed. So it's uh it's it's pretty spectacular. Wow, that's exciting. That's great stuff. And you know, it's just nice to know that it is curated and all in one spot, so that uh, we all have it someday. Not that I'm worried about the dead being able to maintain all of their stuff. You know, and as long as they keep discovering these little golden nuggets that have been sitting under their nose for a long time. Uh, all the much, uh, all that much, the better. Um, and it, it's fun in the liner notes. Um, some of Owsley Stanley's uh, guys write uh, uh, write a little bit about it too. And so you know, it's nice to kind of hear all about how he was, you know, from the inside and uh, what what recording the shows meant to him and what his mission was. And that really was his mission to you know to try and record as much as everything as possible. And I think he might have even been a little bit frustrated, you know, that there were a few early years there, you know, 65, 66 when there's just going to be some stuff that just wasn't recorded. And even, you know, all the way up into 1970, the issue wasn't always was, you know, was Owsley or, or Betty or whoever there to record it. The issue is what the hell happened to the tapes after they recorded it. 
so once again, you know, that may even be worse. You know that there's tapes out there, but you just don't know where they are. Uh, and maybe you can eventually track them down. And in this case, they have. And uh, again, with the Jerry Garcia band, let's get this guy on. That's a great story right there. Love to talk about that. Love to talk about it. Just really quickly to uh, change our focus here for a second, because we got some really great Grateful Dead stuff coming up. And if we dive into it right away, we'll never get back to the marijuana stuff. And that is part of our name. Okay, so maybe we get the Prognosticators Award or something, right? Last week, we're talking about where the industry is going, what the value of, you know, any paper that you have in the industry might eventually be. And, you know, why is it, why is we going in this direction? And now uh, this week we hear uh, that there's cannabis companies laying off hundreds um, and, you know, they're trying to find ways to retrench their business operations now uh, because guess what? Marijuana businesses are businesses. And once the initial enjoyment and celebration slows down, you know, maybe a year or two, it just becomes the same as anything else, right? People have limited dollars. They have to decide what to spend it on. And, you know, maybe the difference is that instead of going in and buying an ounce at a time, just because I can, you start going in and buying an eighth or a quarter of an ounce, because that's what my budget will work, how my budget will work out this week. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Rob? I mean, my thoughts are that this is predictable. I mean, we've been talking about the, uh, the industry uh, headwinds that we're all facing. Again, you know, budget's been slashed considerably. That There is no marketing budget at most of these companies now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of, of negotiating a transaction for one of my clients where the counterparty is, you know, a pretty big organization. It's trying to get a massive marketing budget out of my client. And we're, we're laughing at them. We're like, buddy, like, this isn't 2018. No one's got that kind of money. Like, you know, he's like, oh, well, I've got another interested party. We're like, yeah, have at it. You know, let let them foot the bill because it's only going to accelerate their demise. You know, no chance anyone's dropping this kind of coin. So, you know, in California, like, you know, slotting fees was always a big thing for a long time. And there's other, you know, fees to, to get your product on the shelf. That's all going away because no one's got the budget for it. There's no competition to say, okay, well, you know, I'll pay more than that guy will to make sure I can get my product in your store now. So it's, it, it's largely predictable that these layoffs are happening. But the article you sent over, which is an MJ Biz article, you know, talked about uh, some of the Canadian companies. And one of the things I felt was pretty interesting was that Aurora just laid off uh, 10% of its workforce or 12% of its workforce. In the next sentence, it said the company's goal is to turn its first profit next year. I mean, let that sink in for a second. Aurora is a multi-billion dollar company. It has never turned a profit. And I've been looking at these Canadian companies saying they're so overvalued for so long that, you know, at what point when you start, you know, putting up quarterly numbers every single quarter, you're losing, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars per quarter, you know, do you say, okay, well, maybe we're not doing this right. Maybe we should try to streamline the business and start, you know, working on our blocking and tackling instead of working on, like, our, our scalability. And I think that, you know, the U.S. companies are, are in significantly better shape, at least the large ones are than that. But, you know, a lot of the, the smaller ones that don't have access to new capital are, are having to rethink how they're going to approach the, uh, the market. And a lot of that comes with layoffs. It's doing more with less. And that's, you know, that there's hiring freezes across the board right now. Um, you know, our producer, Dan, I'm sure, uh, could have his daughter come on and talk about that. You know, she's a recruiter for the industry, but I'm guessing that she's not seeing nearly the same volume of uh, companies seeking new applicants as she was a year ago at this time. Well, you know, I, I think that to some degree, the saving grace is going to be, you know, these still emerging markets, right? Illinois is one of these days, they'll actually get these licenses distributed now and, you know, we'll have 170 new dispensaries. But when we do, we're going to need people to work in those dispensaries. So certainly, though, you know, in Canada, for sure, uh, as a well-developed market and, and in other well-developed markets, you know, where we've seen. And I try to tell my clients that 
notwithstanding the illusion of everybody thinks, well, once I get that license, it's like printing money, but it really isn't. And, you know, it's important to understand that. And, and, you know, in developed markets, new marijuana businesses probably fail as much or more frequently than any other, you know, than other businesses, just because you can only support so many people for so long with so much. And then you've, you've reached your, you've reached your limit. One of the things I think that's interesting about that in Canada, though, tell me if, if you think there's a correlation is this is that Canada is also reporting that they have a record inventory this year of 1.4 billion grams. Now, I assume that's flour and extract and, and all THC. But that seems to me to be a very, very, you know, unusually large inventory, you know, much larger than uh, they would want to carry. Or am I missing the numbers there? Now your numbers are spot on. Here's the thing that people keep forgetting. All of this is predicated on your on your total addressable markets. Tam, tam, tam. You know, and if you've got a country of, of 30 something million people and you're trying to produce for a market of, you know, 100 million people, guess what, man? It's not going to get consumed. You're not going to convince people to, you know, start smoking three times as much as they did. So for all these, you know, groups that sort of had this, if they, if they build it, they will come mentality or we're going to scale as fast as we can because, you know, we want to, we want to get to, um, mass capacity first. Yeah, that's great. But there's still a lot of like small groups out there that were still opening up. And, you know, look, look, as craft breweries opened up around the country, Budweiser and Coors started producing less, you know, they had to, there, there's a, there's equilibrium in what the consumers will buy. And you've got to sort of work into that. The problem is that, you know, those guys are, are, you know, chipping away at the market share of the giants. Here, it's a question of, uh, of, of people still scaling when they've already completely and totally blown past the uh, the consumption ability of, of the addressable market. And we're seeing that, you know, Canada, I always use as a as a, a great um, way to predict what's going to happen in other markets in the United States. And I warned about this, you know, three years ago, going, just watch what's happening in Canada. These guys have completely overbuilt. It's going to crash completely. But now we're watching it happen in Washington. We're watching it happen in Michigan. We're watching it happen in Massachusetts. Uh, Oklahoma is like, you know, the poster child for, for uh, oversupply. So it's, you know, be careful. You know, the, look at your market. Of, of course, there's no, there's no um, uh, what's the, the right word for it, um, you know, shared in, uh, information between all the different groups. There's no cartels that are built as a result of this. But, you know, people should be smart enough to say, okay, how many licenses are out there? How big are their facilities? What is the addressable market? What can a person consume? What are the consumption rates? And then back channel that into like, is this just a stupid idea to build another cultivation? And guess what, man? Nine times out of ten at this point, it is. It makes no sense. I think you're right. I think that I think that in theory, a state like Illinois has a great idea. The problem is that we know, especially in a state like Illinois, it's never going to work out the way it should work out. Uh, there's too many other factors involved, if you will. Um, and, you know, we went from being a state where everyone was going to have an equal opportunity, you know, to, to run their own marijuana business if they want, where we're going to be very quickly a state that's going to be totally uh, uh, monopolized by a very small handful, you know, some very big and well-run multi-state operators. And, you know, we'll, we'll cheer on the little guys as they go forward and, and certainly hope that they can find ways, uh, you know, to survive in their own little niche markets and, and whatever they can do for themselves. But there's not a chance that this market, I don't think, is going to be is going to be one where your average mom or dad is going to be able to, to pop in and open up and, and be able to step in and, and think that they can really compete. Um, you know, I, one, of, one of the dispensaries here the other day was having a big advertisement leading into Labor Day weekend. 
you know, that you could go in and you could buy two eighths of, of, of adult use for, I don't know, $100, $95. So, right, so 50 a pop instead of the normal 80 they charge you. And that's a big break. But at 50 a pop, that's still 20 a pop more than what you're typically paying for top shelf in California in the dispensary. And the stuff you're getting top shelf in California dispensary is a hell of a lot better than the stuff you're getting top shelf in the Illinois dispensary. And, and you know, I we, we talk about these problems and we talk about, you know, whether the industry is going to, you know, really step in and do it the right way or not. And I guess that just, you know, remains to be seen in some degree. But I think it's going to be really important for people to pay attention and, and, and run these businesses like businesses, you know, and if, 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 if as a result of that, we lose the mom and pop element of it, you know, it will be disappointing. Um, and we'll just hope that the big boys can get it done in a way <laughs> so that we um, can keep the industry, you know, going in the direction that we want. It's pounds in California for top shelf, 500 bucks wholesale right now. Five, five, like for really high end, like top, like high end, maybe just over a thousand. But if you're talking about like, you know, the best, like high quality depths, like for, for light depths, like, you know, it's, it, they're mids, but they're still mids testing out at, you know, 28, 29% THC. It's 500 bucks, right? That's crazy. You know, so when you talk about what, what you know, the dispensaries in California, yeah, top shelf is one thing, but you're getting a product as good as anything you see in Illinois, where you can buy for 15 bucks an eighth right now, pre-tax in California or 20 bucks. There's guys out there I know that are selling branded product, branded eighths, two dispensaries at $5 a box, which like there's no possible way that they can be producing it for that cost. So, I mean, I'm speaking to cultivators right now. They're doing whatever they can just to get rid of inventory, even at the expense of saying, okay, we're losing, you know, X amount of dollars per month just to try to stave off, you know, the, the inevitable collapse. So, I mean, the, I think we'll see in the next, um, in the next call it two years, I think you'll see entire markets, state markets, fail completely where they just will completely and totally crash to the point that, uh, that, you know, the, the state has to start completely over again. And I would look at Oklahoma as being probably the most likely of a, of a full-blown crash. Okay. I don't want to know what a marijuana market crash looks like, but maybe we'll find out and get to report on it. It means there's going to be a lot of illicit weed flooding other markets. Well, that's, look, we'll get to the third story in a minute, but you're absolutely right. You know, what are you going to tell all these people? Okay, you're shut down. Okay. But, you know, if I'm shut down and I've got a thousand plants, you know, I suppose I have to get rid of them or do whatever I have to do. But yes, this is where the black market comes from. This is, you know, where and all of a sudden an opportunity to say, look, this weed may not be as good as California's, but now I can slash the price of it as low as I want. And, you know, and I'll get rid of it that way. But that's a great point. It'll be interesting to see what the state does about that and whether they throw these guys a bone and say to them, you know, you're, you're, you're closing down. You're not going to be able to survive, but we'll, we'll let you sell off your inventory and look the other way. Although that sets a dangerous precedent, so I, I don't I don't know what they're going to do, I don't know. Uh, but this third news story I was talking about is Michigan and Pennsylvania marijuana workers have voted to unionize. The applications in Illinois required you got your bonus points, which meant you had to get them. Uh, and you know they had these little form letters that you they sent around that you could sign and send over to the local union rep, and they would countersign it and send it back. These standstill or, or, or peaceful agreements that they call them, you let them come in and they can directly present to the workers and try to sell them on the idea of unionization without your interference. And in exchange, they promise that they'll never strike and shut down your business. Uh, over disputes on uh, terms. Now, you know, whether it really works out that way in theory or not, I'm not going to say. But nevertheless, I know that there's some people who just have a knee-jerk reaction and say no to unions. 
because unions tend to make things a lot more expensive because when you have that type of um, group negotiation skill available to you, the power behind that, uh, you know, owners have to listen a lot more. And obviously that's the whole point behind it. Uh, and so the workers get a better deal and they get better quality and they get better everything. Uh, but the, the people who ultimately pay for it in the end are you and I as the consumer, because of course, all of that expense just gets passed right down the line and ultimately gets tacked onto the retail price that we have to pay. The irony of it, in my opinion, is there's a way to beat the union And that's just to create really great working conditions for your workers. Now, you know, I'm not running one of these companies, so I don't have access to their books and records. But, you know, we're reading articles about CEOs who are pulling home multiple millions of dollars in annual salary. And my first question to them is, how much are you paying your people? You know, are you paying them, you know, the salaries that they want and that they need? Are you giving them the benefits and the opportunities to grow with you? Uh, the kind of things that would, you know, if a union comes around, then they say, well, you know, why do I, why do I need to pay a u- annual union fee to get that? I got a great employer here. We're very happy with what we're doing. But it seems like what I'm seeing and hearing about throughout the cannabis industry is too many people opening up and looking for ways to cut corners because of the very issues that we're talking about here. And the first place they cut corners is on salaries. Then all of a sudden you have a bunch of workers who are very incentivized to go in and, and try and, uh, get together a union group and, 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 and gain that, um, and gain that power. So I, I don't know where that's going to go. Ultimately, I guess we'll see, you know, the idea of marijuana workers going on strike and shutting down marijuana dispensary seems kind of anti-hippie culture to me, but, uh, you know, what do I know? I grew up in the, uh, the late seventies. Yeah. Look, I've always thought unions had a, a time and a place and for some industries, I think, you know, collective bargaining agreements are very, very helpful, but an industry that no one can make money already, and there's already so much regulation, so many people with their hands in your pocket, adding one more layer of complication to the owners of these businesses. I mean, look, do I think executive compensation for some of the companies is, uh, is let's call it generous? You know, I, I definitely do. Would I like to see in all industries, or I'd like to see the, uh, the gulf between the CEO pay and the, uh, the rank and file worker pay be much closer to parity? I, I would. I, mean, I look at you know, the 1970s when it used to be that the CEO made you know, 20 times what, a, uh, what, what an average employee makes, and now it's you know, several hundred times. So I, I don't think that that's right either. I don't think that you know people should be getting ultra wealthy on the on the back of the uh, of the business itself. I understand if you own stock in the business that you know you hope for uh, accretion in value and uh, you know all sorts of other things to to make your um, your position worth more. But uh, when it comes to the uh, the employees, putting together collective bargaining agreements for bud tenders for you know what's essentially unskilled labor. And oftentimes being forced to do so by you know by new state regulations, as you said in the application requirements, getting bonus points for saying that you're going to agree to that. It's just one more way that you're setting yourself up to fail. Uh, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way to unions, because you know, but for unions, I don't think we'd have a middle class in this country. And you know, I think over the years they did a lot of great things. But sometimes the utility wanes, and sometimes the uh, the, the pressure that the uh, the the union stewards put on the uh, the businesses that sign up for it. Uh, I think it's, it's somewhat unfair. If you're telling me that a bud tender should be making, you know, 35, 40 bucks an hour as prevailing wage, yeah, yeah I have a tough time with that, knowing that the industry right now just can't uh, afford to, to pay those kinds of wages for unskilled labor. I think you're right. And to the extent they want to, they can try. That's what we saw with our good buddy Adam Bierman and MedMen, right, when they wanted to go on to Fifth Avenue and really 
splash it all out there. Well, obviously the expense of doing it that way caught up with them because they were operating in a market where they couldn't sell anything. And, you know, you can, you can create a big buzz if you will, pardon the pun, but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, the market will only bear what it'll bear. And you have to be very smart, I think, and circumspect about where you choose to spend those dollars. Agreed. And here's where I use my narrator voice to all our listeners out there. Adam Bierman is not our good friend. I, I, to all our listeners out there, I will say that I say that Adam Beerman is my good friend because he bought me dinner once in Seattle and he's a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And that's OK in my book. We Cardinal fans are everywhere. So go, Adam, go Cardinals. Um, <laughs> you know, look, we've seen all these different companies that have had their ups and downs. And, I, you know, I, I, I just think that if everybody started off with the idea of we're going to value our workers as our most valuable asset and work up from there, you know, I, I think you save yourself a lot of time and trouble in the long run. A lot of people don't see it that way, and they're certainly entitled to see it however they want. But, you know, my experience is, is it just ultimately creates more problems for you later. Uh, it's, it's because we're socialists, Larry. Well, there's that too. <laughs> uh, you know, don't tell anybody or yeah, we'll get... Paints the socialists, you know, the, the utilitarian theory of, of running a good business where the workers actually want to go to work every day, I and mean, God forbid that's a, a, such a radical idea. But, uh, but yeah, no, I agree that you create a good work environment and you foster an environment where people are excited to get up and go to work because they're getting paid well and they enjoy what they do. Uh, it's, it's not too difficult to do and you don't need it. You need to do it. Exactly. And God, of all the industries in the world, shouldn't people who work in the marijuana industry, if I was working in that industry full time, I'd be getting up with a smile on my face every day. Yeah, I, I would too. I mean, just the idea that you can go work in the cannabis industry, you know, when, when 10 years ago, uh, outside of a couple of key states, that was just, you know, an impossibility. I mean, if, if I were most of uh, the politicians in this country and I were looking at how many manufacturing uh, jobs we've lost overseas and you're trying to think about a way to, uh, to bring jobs back to the United States, I mean, you've got to look at the, uh, the cannabis industry and think this has been a savior in so many ways when you think about how many people are employed in the United States, like locally, working in this industry that it is impossible to outsource overseas. It's just a fantastic thing for, for the country. And why they're actually uh, still trying to figure out ways to to crush the industry for for tax revenue, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's like big picture. Look at what we're actually doing. Look at how much money is staying inside the local economy, inside your state economy, inside your town economy, and uh, and, and tell me why this is a bad thing. And tell me why you're trying to destroy it. Because I'm telling you, man. When I I keep saying it, and I know at this point our listeners are probably sick of hearing me say it. It will not work in the long term. You are going to kill this industry if you continue to regulate it the way you are. No, you have said it, and I can't disagree with it, and, and it is unfortunate, you know, and, and like we say, it's the marijuana industry, for God's sakes, you know, you, you shouldn't need an outside group of people to come in and set up these standards for you. I mean, okay, everybody's not perfect, I get it, and even if you go back, I'm sure, to the hippie days and up in the Green Triangle, there were the those who were, you know, operating, you know, even a little too far outside the rules for the rest of the group, but markets are what they are. And if, like you say, if everything crashes, that's the, the model we're going to be going back to anyway. And, you know, if that's the government's goal is to defeat the industry by just letting it cave in on itself, we know that's not going to work because that's not going to, the marijuana sales are not going to ultimately start or stop based on what the government does or doesn't say. What are we still at? 60, 70% of marijuana sales every year are black market. Is that, am I too high with that? Is, are we cl getting closer to 50-50 yet? No, it's, it's still still far more illicit uh, market sales than there are legal market sales. It's, it's not even close. It's a, it's a big difference. The regulators still choose to believe 
that if you make it legal, the people are just going to adopt a legal market. And it just doesn't work that way. I mean, just, outlaws are going to outlaw. Crimers are going to crime. If you can actually do it and you can get away with it and you can actually make a healthy living to it, if, if, if there's a profit motivation, someone's going to find a way to, to run an illicit market. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's cigarettes. I don't care if it's booze. I don't care if it's anything else. If it's more profitable to do it illegally than it is to do it legally, people are going to find a way to do it illegally and they're going to do it very well. I mean, the, the, I got to say, man, the most innovative people I've ever met in my life are outlaws, all of them. Like, they're, they're damn good at what they do and they're one step ahead of everything else that like regulators are thinking about because like bureaucrats aren't nearly as creative as the guys are that are trying to figure out ways to, uh, to put food on the table. It's true. You know, and look, I took economics 101. There's one good way to get rid of the black market. You lower the price to the point where the black market can't compete with you. So the marijuana industry has to decide what it wants to do, how much profit it wants to make and how important it is, you know, for it to choke off the black market. Now, maybe that's not even realistic, ultimately, in the, you know, in the marijuana industry. But, you know, I got to tell you, if I'm going to walk into a dispensary in Illinois and I'm being given a choice, you know, 80 or $90 for an eighth of marijuana, and I go talk to someone who I know, who I know gets it from someone who he knows, who's getting it from a really good place. It's safe, it's good, and it's a fraction of that price. Where's my where, where's my motivation to buy legally? There's none, and, and, and there won't be. Uh, so you know, again, we, we can figure out we can figure out ways to to better message, but I think right now it's it's falling on deaf ears. It's obvious it's falling on deaf ears because you know legislators just don't seem to care that this is happening. And I think part of it is because ultimately, you know, they, they really don't care. You know, what happens to the industry, it's, you know, too bad. You decide to get involved in a, uh, in a Schedule One federally legal uh, industry. You, you thought you were going to make a ton of money. We put out regulations years ago. FinCEN put out guidance saying, be careful about doing this. The SEC put out guidance. They can look at it and say, hey, we put a caveat emptor out on this thing, you know, back in 2013. And you guys chose to ignore it. And guess what? You know, too bad that your business has failed. Too bad that your investments failed. Too bad the rest of it. But don't say we didn't warn you. We told you not to do it back then. So, you know, there, there has been a fair amount of, um, of uh, telegraphing of kind of how they were feeling about the industry before they did it. I mean, the DEA's never wavered on its position about the, uh, about the cannabis industry. You know, for them, they're like, okay, we'll accept it. As long as the uh, IRS is collecting, you know, tax revenue like this and the, st the states and the towns are too. If you guys go broke in the process... You know, say Dimash, it's, it's too bad, man. You know, it's, uh, you shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. You should have picked an industry that's not illegal. And so that, that's kind of what we're up against. And so, you know, we're obviously not messaging as an industry well enough to, uh, to change people's minds because so far nothing has changed. You know, it's, it's, it's getting worse and worse because everyone hoped that legislation would change to make it better. And the longer it hasn't, the more that you know people feed the uh, feed into this thing, and the deeper some of these companies get in, in debt. Now, a lot of the big ones are fine. A lot of the big ones will, will make it, but you know there are wave after wave after wave of businesses going under right now across the cannabis industry, and a lot of it's because um, people were operating on the hopes of what they hoped the law would be, and not what the law was. And so I'm sympathetic, but I'm also realistic that uh that you know the writing was on the wall for a while and if we really want to change this perhaps there should have been more banding together and pooling of resources to uh to get out there and really send a message that says you know like hey you know we're, we're gonna stop selling for a week and you can see you know the illicit sales and what happens like people aren't gonna stop smoking weed there, there had to be some sort of threat back from our industry to say okay you guys you know we, you really want to call our bluff this is what happens if we don't do it and it's gonna be rampant the problem is that you know no one really thinks that cannabis is all that dangerous to begin with, including the legislators. 
So it's, it, they accepted it sort of tacitly before on the illicit side, and they're still tacitly accepting it on the legal side. Not much has changed. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, you know, to all of our listeners, you know, sorry to be such, you know, doom and gloom the last couple of weeks because we really do love cannabis. We really do love it a lot. And um, we are huge supporters of the industry in every way, shape or form. However, you know, again, it's like being on the inside and seeing how the sausage is made. When you see what's going on, you, 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 it's very frustrating because the the needs of many are sometimes subsumed by the desires of a few. And I guess it's like anything else in this world. If you've got the means and the ability to do it, then you get to make the rules. If not, then you have to play by the rules. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. But guys who never played by the rules, and let's switch back over to them for a few minutes because uh, this is this music is just too good not to listen to today from, uh, from this show that was released as Dave's Picks 43 uh, from Family Dog, November 2nd, 1969. So we got rid of the uh, the country tune that that was you know kind of indicative a little bit of, of where they were going to be going soon. But then, at, towards the end of the show, they dive into the uh, this traditional suite of four tunes that they've been doing at that period of time. We we focused on it a lot back in February and March when they did their four nights at the Fillmore West and and uh, put down a lot of the versions that wound up on Live Dead. And, you know, now here they are at the end of the year. And the beauty of this Dark Star is uh, that they're cranking just as strong as ever. You heard how strong Bobby's vocals were in Seasons of My Heart. Well, Dan, spin this and everyone listen to how great Jerry's vocals are. That's great stuff, you know, almost the end of the year. And, you know, Jerry's playing it with energy. He's singing it. It sounds so good. As We're going to hear more, more of Dark Star in a second because, okay, so here's the quick story behind it, and I'll be try to be as quick as I can. Go back to, for me, what was last Saturday. For you guys, by the time you hear this, it'll be two Saturdays ago, but the Saturday of Labor Day weekend, and my kids have all moved out of the house. Saturday morning, my wife is out walking or visiting friends or doing whatever she was doing. And I got up and I went downstairs and I had the house to myself with Michigan football kicking off at 11 a.m. Central time. And this was about 9, 930. Uh, so I needed some live music to really set the mood for the day and went in and um, first listened to uh, Prince. We went to the uh, Prince Immersion exhibit that's uh, been here in Chicago uh, for a month or two. And when our whole gang was in town to go to Sacred Rose, we spent a day going over there. Thanks to my wife for pulling down the tickets for us. And on this gift shop on the way out, I always try to avoid all of it, but they had a remastered version of 1999 on vinyl. 
And so being a sucker for vinyl, I went ahead and grabbed it. So uh, two Saturday mornings ago, there I am putting on side one of 1999. And I will admit I was inspired by having seen Fish's version of it at Alpine Valley a few weeks ago. And that was fantastic. And then I spilled from that into a little bit of fish for a minute. I've been going around and discovering new fish tunes that I really like, like Julius and Gumbo and uh, stuff like that. So I was listening to this live fish. And right in the middle of all of this, I thought, this is all such great music. This is all wonderful. I've got all, where the hell is the Grateful Dead? I've been so focused on all these other bands for a while. I just, it hit me that I needed some Grateful Dead music. And I walked over and I picked up Dave's Picks 43 and hadn't really given it a full listen and immediately saw that I was going to go straight to this little thing of four tunes and went and checked the time and realized it was just about 10 o'clock. And if I, uh, if I if I put it in the, the, the disc in right then and hit play, I could probably get the whole thing done before the 11 o'clock kickoff. But my thought going in was, it's a 30-minute dark star. I'll just listen to the first few minutes of it, and then uh, I'll move on to St. Stephen and, and listen more to that in the 11 and uh, the Death Don't Have No Mercy. But Rob, like from the minute this dark star started, I was just totally stuck in it. I It was like being at a concert. I found myself just standing there at the table in the kitchen where I have speakers in there, and I wasn't doing anything. I was just kind of moving back and forth, listening to this dark star, immediately said, I, I'm not turning this off, man. I'm listening to the full dark star here. It, it, it's it's so melodic, you know. While, you know, I, I understand that for some people, a big part of dark star is really kind of the exploratory sound that they get off into. This one just had much more melody to it. And, you know, it, it, it was out there enough for me and it's great. And I'm thinking all of this other music that we see, all of these other bands that are now just exploding on the scene and just, you know, selling out now at these, at these, um, uh, at these festivals and, and Goose and Trey are touring up and down the East Coast and selling out everywhere. And none of this is meant in any way to say anything negative about these bands. I think they're wonderful. And I, I I'm, I uh, got my tickets for J-Rad, who are coming here in De uh, December, presumably as a makeup, because since we missed them at Sacred Rose when they canceled on us. And um, Fish may be coming the week or the week after that, uh, the week or two after that. So uh, I'm really excited to see that. But when we get back to it at its core, it just it, it, it all brings us back to the Grateful Dead. And when you're sitting there listening to Dark Star, you know, on a beautiful day, and you got a great football game coming up, Michigan won, by the way, but that's not the point of the story. <laughs> I just could not walk away from this Dark Star. And then we get to this point right where we're about to play the next clip. And I had to go back and listen to it twice because I just wasn't sure if I was hearing what I thought I was hearing. And when I sent this over to Rob, I said, you know, before we pick this show, I want you to go to this point on the uh, on the track and, and listen to it and tell me what you heard. And Rob confirmed what I thought. So, Dan, if you'll spin that and then we'll see if everybody else hears it, we'll come back and talk about it in a minute.
Okay, I got one word for you. Eyes, eyes, eyes. We're listening to a dark star from 1969 that still, you know, has them wrapped in this primal dead. And yes, they're starting to play a little bit of country tunes. And within a year, they'll definitely be making that swing out there. But Eyes of the World is three years away. It's, you know, not played in concert until February of 1973. Uh, Wake of the Flood, the album that it's on, comes out in October of 73. So almost four years, three and a half years in advance, right? So this is vintage dead in so many ways. We're in the middle of this whole primal dead thing. Jerry's teasing where the band is going, if he even knows what he's doing. But the best part is the crowd is in on it without knowing it, right? I mean, at that time, there was no eyes. So how nobody would hear that and think, aha, we get that benefit. So even though we missed those exciting days, you know, as, as kind of like, you know, the researchers or the nerds that we are going back on it. What did you think when you heard that? Yeah, look, I mean, you sent it over to me uh, as I was falling asleep the other night and I threw in my headphones and, uh, and queued it right up <clears throat> and went, you know, initially to about a minute or two before you told me to listen, just so I could actually hear how the jam was progressing before it hit the point you told me to listen to. And uh, it was such a unique jam to begin with. I mean, even before it hit that mark, but as soon as it hit the mark you were talking about, <clears throat> it was instantaneous. Like, oh my God, this, like, this, is, this is eyes before eyes. Like, almost immediately it hit me around. Like, that, that, can't be, that can't be what it is, because as, you know, as we all know, Eyes wasn't written until several years later. It came out in Wake of the Flood. It wasn't played until, I think, Maple's Pavilion was the first time in 73. Uh, in, in so I mean, to, to actually see the, uh, the the progression of you know here's an idea that was obviously in Garcia's head a long time before that, uh, much like yourself. Not only did I listen to the rest of it through, but I went back and re-listened to the entire thing from the beginning, and then listened to the section one more time because it was so unique. And as I said in the beginning of the show, it is so rare that I I hear a show that I'm like, wow, I've never listened to this before, and how did I not know about this? How did I, you know the cow? Have I never like had the um, the, the experience of, of having heard this one ahead of time, thinking that I knew all the great 1969 uh, Dark Stars, you know, like whether it's the Fillmore West or it's the Ark from Boston or some of the other, like, you know, classics from 69. I, I thought I'd heard almost all of them. And this is a completely and totally different jam than you hear in any other uh, Dark Star from 1969. And as you said, in the heart of the primal era. Right. It's the banana boxes, right? It's been there right under their nose the entire time. And now they finally discovered it. Now it's going out. Now we get to hear it. And, you know, it, it, it is. It's just wonderful. And I, and I will confess when I'm driving and I'm listening to a dead show and if I'm listening to it on a CD and it gets to a dark star, a lot of times I'll just skip right through it or right past it to keep going with tunes that I can listen to and sing along to or whatever I'm doing while I'm driving. But this one was just that that's just amazing that I mean, what it what it, to me, what I love about it is, is it's like even in the midst of performing, they're creating right They're They're developing Jerry's. He's just out there. I'm sure he I, I can't imagine that Hunter had the words to eyes of the world at that point and that, you know, Jerry was already matching it up. He was just playing around with a tune that was developing in his head. And, you know, in the middle of a dark star, we're better than that to to play around with it for a few minutes. And, you know, and see what it sounds like. And, you know, they do that, right? They For a few years, they played Wave That Flag, which was basically U.S. blues without the, 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 the finalized U.S. blues lyrics. But Yeah, the cool thing about it is that for the last, like, 12 minutes of that Dark Star until they come back into the second verse, it doesn't have the Dark Star theme at all. It's a completely, totally different jam where it goes away from, from the standard theme of, of kind of the, uh, the outer space Dark Stars you expect. And goes into a very fun sort of like up tempo melodic uh, jam, which becomes the eyes jam or you know, the pre eyes jam uh, before it actually comes back in. For the last three minutes of the song, it does fold back into a very traditional dark star when it goes back into the uh, the mirror crashes uh, or, or mirror shatters, which they sing as mirror crashes in this version. 
it uh, it goes right back into you know kind of exactly how you expect the dark start end, which is something that you know the Grateful Dead didn't do too often. You know, jam bands nowadays do it all the time, where they'll they'll take their jam completely out of the uh, the traditional part of the song and then work its way back in, where you've totally forgotten what they're playing at all. But this dark start, like you you forget that it's even close to a dark start until they come back into the second verse. A true stage two uh, jam, as the fish heads would say. That's correct. But, but yeah, it, it, it's just great. Um, the main 10 is the early version of playing in the band. And that's it, 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 what they called it while they were working it out and eventually became playing in the band. And on some of the uh, early Dick's picks, and or I guess maybe some of the Dave's uh, picks as well, but from the early shows, I would see it on there from time to time. And when you listen to it, it's just a jam. And they're they're kind of picking their way through this melody and Sure enough, there it is, you know, and it eventually becomes playing in the band. So this is, in fact, something that the dead do. And, you know, I have no doubt that other bands do it. You know, I'm sure if, if Trey's out on stage and he's in the middle of a jam and he has a, a melody flickering around in his brain, he might start, you know, trying to work something out in any of them. But this is where it begins, right? This is this is this is the blueprint for it. This is the you know, and this is happening right at this moment in time when, um, you know, 68, 69, going into 1970, and we've talked about what was going on in San Francisco, and we talk about the effect of hallucinogens and how new they were at the time and taking people places that they had never been before. And, you know, it's kind of like, you, you, I, I think of this this set of four songs, you know, in many ways as the soundtrack, you know, that, that have created for the whole San Francisco party scene, acid scene, psychedelic scene, and um, uh, certainly this version of, you know, Dark Star holds up and then some, and um, it's just great to hear that little tease. And, you know, we'll listen for that as we go through other shows with other dark stars and find if there's uh, uh, other good examples of them, uh, you know, just taking some tunes out for a test drive uh, a few years before they come out. Out of that, though, they have their traditional drop right into St. Stephen. We've all listened to St. Stephen hundreds of times and everybody knows the words and, you know, everybody thinks they know what it means, but most people don't and I don't pretend to. However, during this period of time, then, as you'll see, they go straight from St. Stephen into the 11, but for a really brief period of the time in late 1969, or maybe as far back as the beginning of March of 69, because I think this is on uh, Live Den and on the uh, Fillmore albums, um, but but had stopped by probably the middle of 1970, was this little connecting tune they wrote uh, that was part of St. Stephen. It's, it's, it's officially part of the St. Stephen lyrics, but they put some extra music to it. And it's known as the William Tell Bridge. And it's just four quick little verses that they, they sing kind of with a, um, I don't know how you would describe it, but a, like a, almost like a medieval type of, you know, beat and flute sound to it and everything. And um, I think this all just kind of fit in with, you know, this whole, aura that they were building at the time as part of this whole, you know, the acid tests and everything else. And um, well, well, let's listen to it and we can talk about it more in a minute. My green chili winds and windy vines and loops around the twining shafts of lavender that crawl into the sun. Around the 
Yeah, Jerry just kind of letting out a little primal scream there at the end. Actually, the, uh, the 11 was written by Jerry Phil and, and Robert Hunter. So uh, those guys get the credit for it. Um, and, and I guess right around the time <clears throat> they stopped playing the 11, they dropped the William Tell Bridge as they didn't really have anything to William Tell connected to there. And, uh, and it went away. But I've always been fascinated by it. You know, it's just like one of those little things they just dropped in there for a while. And then they said, okay, no more. And they pulled it out. When did I hear it for the first time? Probably, it may be at the, at the Terrapin Family Reunion might have been the first time I ever heard it played live. I think they played it then. And, uh, you know, various versions of The Dead and Further, whoever have played it from time to time. And it always sounds great. But, you know, again, it was another one of those things that, had its moment and then went away. Yeah, I always dug it. I always thought the William Tell Bridge was super cool. It was a great way to sort of segue into the 11. But uh, as you said, time and place, and of all things they did shelf, you know, it didn't, I, I can't imagine seeing it like as the dead played in like the late 80s and the 90s. It's just so far away from where they were as a band at that point. Whereas like a song like St. Stephen could have stayed in the lineup all the way through and would have worked. You know, that one seemed to be a little bit um, outdated as to like their older sound. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, one of these days, if we ever get anybody from the Dead family on the show, we'll ask them all these questions about where the hell these songs went for so many years. But I do think that's true. And uh, uh, I, I, I also think it's very true that these are songs that, you know, the, the Grateful Dead of 1994 would not have been doing the William Tell Bridge. It just wouldn't have worked for them. Uh, it's a shame that the 11 couldn't work for them. And that's a, we're, we're going to listen to the 11 in a second. That's definitely a complicated tune to play and a lot of energy. And the vocals on that are, are, are really intense. And I think that, you know, in order to sing those vocals the way Jerry and Bobby sang them, you know, you have to really be focused in on them. You have to probably practice it every now and then. And that was all kind of an anthema to Jerry. So, you know, I, I guess it never really got done that way. And, um, you know, and they had to move on. But but the 11 is just such a hot tune. And I'll tell you, that's I judge dead cover bands by how well they can play the 11. And that's why I always give J-Rad my double thumbs up, because I think they play the 11 better than anybody out there, better than Dead & Company. Because again, in Dead & Company, it's just Bobby singing. He doesn't have that that voice coming back at him. And in, in J-Rad, they solve that problem. Yep, I agree with that. And I think the 11 is, is still technical. I think for any band to play the 11, it's a, it's a technical song. So to get it right is uh, is tough. It's a, it's a really, really unique time signature. But, you know, I think as a, as a musician, if you're a good enough musician to be able to keep that signature, you actually probably have a lot of fun playing the 11. I think so. Dan, you want to spend that uh, clip of the song for us, please? Thank you. 
in, in many ways, I it, I think that that song is is so defining of the Grateful Dead. Just the combination of of uh, the funky lyrics, the amazing you know music, and the way they play it. And you know, especially then when they were really into it, and they were playing it you know as hard as they could. And it's a great tune. Yeah, I love that one. Always have loved that one. So when I first uh, started getting the Grateful Dead, and I was listening to the early uh, early music, you know, called from like you know sixty seven to seventy one. You know, the, the 11 was one of those ones I always look forward to. And obviously, during that period, there was a lot of them to choose from. Yep, I think that's true. I think that's very true. Now, really, uh, where we go with uh, with our next tune kind of, you know, winds us down with everything. And it, it's the end of the show. Um, and we'll we'll focus on, on the song placement there in a second. But to me, the big story is, is that at that period of time, if you were seeing the dead play this combination of tunes, uh, Love Light was the typically the fourth tune uh, following the 11. You know, and that's the way they obviously have it on Live Dead and the, the Fillmore shows, although there is one version of the Fillmore shows where they again s- sub in Death Don't Have No Mercy as the uh, as the fourth tune. And Death Don't Have No Mercy is just a, what a what a what a great song that is. The Reverend uh, Gary Davis wrote it. Dates all the way back, I think, to 1960 on his album Harlem Street Singer. Uh, and and Jerry has said that the Dead drew much a lot of influence from his from Reverend Gary Davis's improvisational, broad bass style of blues guitar. This will be a good tune for us to go out on in a second, and and it, I think it really signifies the whole show. There. Uh, it's played so nicely. Again, Jerry's voice is just, you know, at its peak. And the reason that this clip runs on just a little bit longer than I know Dan likes is because when he gets to the very last line in this land, he keeps holding each word and finally each letter of the word land out and out and out. And when I was sitting there uh, getting it ready to the clip for Dan, and I was looking at how much it was running over the one minute rule. Uh, and I just said, well, he's, you know, how, how long can Jerry hold this note? And as you'll see, he can, he can hold it uh, uh, quite a way, uh, quite a ways. It was a great tune uh, to end a terrific show, and it's a great tune for us to go out on. I think that that's uh, everything I've got today, Rob. Anything more from you? Uh, only one other thing from me, <clears throat> which is, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Elvis Costello is playing uh, the music of Garcia and Hunter at the uh, Great American Ballroom on September 30th in San Francisco. So uh, I'm wondering if we can find anyone that's going to that show, because that should be a pretty good one. I mean, I think uh, we've all known that Elvis Costello is a big Garcia fan for a long time. But uh, if you haven't put that one on your radar, uh, it should be there. That'll be a super cool show. September 30th. I'll call your good buddy Alex. Yeah, exactly. Have to see if Alex Wellens, see if Alex Wellens is going, but it's in three and a half weeks. But, uh, but that should be a cool one. I'm, I'm guessing I'll probably know a handful of people that are going to that show just based on uh, what it is and what it's billed as. Uh, so it's a benefit uh, show that Elvis is doing, but it should be pretty darn cool. Other than that, uh, great pick on the show today, Larry. Super fun. It was so much fun actually getting to know the show. So much fun uh, listening through it. As I said, you know, I've, I've had my earphones in uh, or my earbuds, depending on where I'm sitting, for the last you know 48 hours since you sent this one across my desk, and I've just been having so much fun listening to this one, uh, especially the Dark Star. So. For all you guys out there, you know, definitely tune it in. Listen to the whole thing. You know, we played you very small clips of it, but the entire Dark Star is uh, is, is by far um, worth listening to the whole show just for you know that segment. So great job, and uh, thanks for bringing this one to my attention. Absolutely, yeah, it was a lot of fun today, and it, it was a good one to play. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, more great music, more good discussion about marijuana, and uh, just doing what we love to do. So. Uh, as we end today, we will end it on uh, Grateful Dead Plant Death Don't Have No Mercy uh, from November 2nd, 1969. 
Chad Helms, Family Dog on the Great Highway. Everyone have a great week. Be good, stay safe, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.